Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing this fine Sunday, Ben? Pretty good. Um, I've been really tired lately because I've been really busy Yeah. lately. I have a lot going, going on. on. Yeah, just juggling a lot of plates. Think so... you're supposed to spin plates? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. But, but you, I mean, can, you can juggle plates, yeah, too, and the metaphor, metaphor works just as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I, I slept in a lot today, which I kind of regret because now I'm behind on some of that work because I was sleeping instead. But, eh. <laughs> Here we are. We're doing the episode. Yeah. How are you doing, Sarah? I am super excited. Oh, because we have a new patron. Oh, cool. Thank you to Darlene E., our latest patron of the night. Thanks, Darlene. If you would like to join Darlene in becoming a patron of the night, you can head over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Darlene. So what are we watching tonight, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Brain Eaters from 1958, directed by Bruno Vesoda. Okay. We have run into Bruno Vesoda before. I was um, going to say his name sounds familiar. But uh, we ran into him last as an actor, not as a director. Uh, he was born in Chicago. In Chicago. Chicago in 1922. He began acting in school plays. And at age 19, he went to the Hobart Theater where he learned acting, makeup, and directing. He became a mainstay of the like local Chicago entertainment scene. Um, he did a lot of radio. He acted on stage. He directed stage plays. Um, and he also did like local Chicago television where he directed, produced, wrote, acted, you know, just did a lot of stuff in like the local Chicago entertainment zone. Yeah. A uh, bit of a triple quadruple threat. Sure. In 1952, he moved out to Hollywood. From, like, looking at his credits, it seems like he kind of went from being big fish in a small pond to, you know, little fish in a big pond, right? Um, he began acting in low-budget projects, uh, including the films of Roger Corman, such as The Fast and the Furious in 1954. In 1959, he appeared as the villainous rich man in John Parker's Dementia. Yes. Uh, which he also helped expand from like a short film to a feature by contributing ideas, funds, and experience to help the novice filmmaker along. Following Dementia, Vesoda continued to appear in Corman films. I think he's in a total of 15 Roger Corman films. Um, wow. Titles like Gunslinger, The Undead, and War of the Satellites, among many others. Vesoda's earliest experience as a director outside of theater was the TV series They Stand Accused from 1959 to 1952, which he wrote and produced for as well. It was a local live courtroom drama out of Chicago that got picked up for a uh, national broadcast by the DeMont Television Network, which um, ceased to exist uh, a few years into the 1950s. In 1955, he directed the film noir Female Jungle for AIP, uh, so that was his, like, feature film experience before this, other than, like, helping out on dementia. So by 1958, he was sort of itching to direct another movie, and he had acquired a sci-fi horror script from Gordon Urquhart, who had acted in Female Jungle. Vesoda brought the script to Corman, who helped him raise $26,000 to shoot the picture. Okay. Ed Nelson, who we just saw in Night of the Blood Beast, uh, agreed to star in The Brain Eaters if he could produce the picture as well with Corman as executive producer. Really seeing that Roger Corman school. Yeah. Uh, so Nelson also created the movie's monsters uh, using wind-up toys, fur coats, and pipe cleaners. Amazing. <laughs> Nelson's co-star in this movie is Joanna Lee, who played Tana 
in Plan 9 from Outer Space and would go on to write for the Flintstones and create the Great Gazoo. In a small role as Professor Cole is 27-year-old actor Leonard Nimoy. Oh, shit. Uh, His name is misspelled Leonard Nemoy in the credits. Oh, well, you know. The film was shot in six days, and the onset sound was found to be so bad that narration by Alan Frost was recorded in order to explain the, like, events in the harder-to-understand scenes. Oh, no. Additionally, Nelson used this opportunity to transfer a lot of lines of dialogue to his character when other members of the cast uh, couldn't or wouldn't show up for ADR. Okay. I mean, that kind of makes sense Mm. as, like, a last resort. Mm. The film was released in September of 1958 on a double bill with either Earth vs. the Spider or Terror from the Year 5000, depending on what market you were in. (laughs) After its release, science fiction author Robert Heinlein sued the producers for plagiarism, Mm -hmm. asking for $150,000. How uh, quick math here... I believe that's over the budget that they had. Yes, that's like over <laughs> it's over four times the budget yeah. that they had. Um, claiming that the movie was based on his 1951 novel, The Puppet Masters. Yes. Now, Robert Heinlein is kind of a big deal. He is um, a pioneer of hard science fiction. For those not familiar with that term, hard science fiction is pretty focused on like scientific accuracy and logic versus, um, I guess you could say soft science fiction in the sense of like monsters from space. Yeah. Soft sci-fi is like Star Trek or, um, well, Star Trek tries, but Star Trek or like Star Wars, if you consider Star Wars sci-fi, hard sci-fi is like like 2001 a space odyssey like trying for that realism yeah it's sort of the difference between jules verne and hg wells if you want to go back to like the foundations of the genre Mm -hmm. to kind of give some context about who robert heinlein is his interest in space and astronomy started uh at a very young age um with the 1910 halley's comet uh passing by earth And he decided he wanted to go into engineering when he was ready to go to college. Um, But he was from a poor family, so he decided to go to the military academy. And he would graduate from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1929. He was commissioned to an aircraft carrier to do radio telecommunications. And he would kind of climb up the military ladder, but ultimately would not serve in World War II due to a medical discharge from tuberculosis in 1934. After his recovery in the 30s, Heinlein decided to pursue politics. Um, specifically, uh, he was part of the End Poverty in California movement, also called EPIC, which is like, good job, guys, with hmm. that acronym. Um, and he would also do a 1938 run for the Democratic State Assembly, which would fail. Of course, it's worth pointing out that in the late 30s, the Democrats were more right wing than they are now. And the Republicans were more left wing than they are now. Sure. Heinlein's politics inform a lot of his writing. And I've read a lot of Heinlein's writing. And Heinlein was a hardcore libertarian. Yeah. Um, and a uh, like... Uh, big into like um, objectivism adjacent, I would call him. Okay. Uh, he's really famous for uh, coining the phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, after this state assembly campaign failed, um, Heinlein decided to turn to writing to try to support his family, with his first published short story being Lifeline, published in 1939 in Astounding Science Fiction. Through the 40s, he would connect with other notable authors, um, particularly Isaac Asimov and Leon Sprague de Camp. Ah, El Sprague de Camp. Yeah. <laughs> Leon Sprague de Camp. But post-World War II, um, specifically post-bombing uh, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Heinlein sought to write more like nonfiction, kind of political pieces, 
and uh, for science fiction, when he would bring in his politics there, for it to be taken more seriously as a genre. Mm-hmm. And he arguably achieved this for himself with four short stories being published in the 1947 February issue of Saturday Evening Post, beginning with his short story, The Green Hills of Earth. In 1950, um, he wrote the story and scenario for Destination Moon. Yes. Um, So if we've talked about him on the podcast before, it would probably be whenever we mentioned Destination Moon. And from 1947 to 1959, in terms of what he's doing right now, um, he is writing young adult novels for young boys, kind of called like juvenile novels. Yeah. These are like the most similar thing that many Hardy people, boys. Hardy boys would yeah. be the thing that people have heard of that would be equivalent to this kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. By 1958, he's working on some big novels that get published in the future, like Stranger in a Strange Land and Starship Troopers. Yeah. Um, but he does have many novels under his belt that are mainly collections of serialized work, like The Puppet Masters, which was published as a novel in 1951 and published earlier that year in Galaxy Science Fiction. Mm, yeah. So I know we'll be talking more about Heinlein in feature episodes because he is a big deal. So that's what I'll cover for now in terms of where he's at in uh, 1958. In the case of the politics that he is bringing into the Puppet Masters, it's very standard 1950s Red Scare mm-hmm. uh, symbolism. Mm-hmm. It is set in the far off future of 2007. Okay. And there is, uh, Earth has a national security agency. There are invasions from an alien slug race coming to Earth. Oh, the Yerks. and in order to gather evidence that we are under attack um the national security agency sends their two best agents to investigate this invasion by these slug creatures Mulder and scully uh actually um the main agent that we follow his name is sam he eventually marries the female agent that he is paired with and so sam is investigating this eventually he gets taken over by one of these slug creatures that you basically like hook into your brain um and are used as puppets now through the story you know sam breaks free by like squishing it um he gets married to his uh fellow agent um and then they have to like fight off more of these slug monsters eventually it ends with um this is specifically in like america um they have a force going to whatever planet these slug creatures came from but also russia and china have been completely taken over by these slug monsters and if only we could defeat the slug monsters while still reconciling with the communists Mm -hmm. very much um like you know, you don't know who's being controlled. Yeah. Um, what I did find interesting is it's not necessarily like once you're taken over, like that's it for you. Like you can fight off the slug, you can kill it, and then you can be like normal again, mm-hmm. a, a red-blooded American again. Right. Um, there is a line in there that's like, well, I guess the Cold War will never end because now we have to fight against slug monster China and Russia. Sure. Um, so there is, you know, it's pretty explicit in the Red Scare, but it has many themes that we've been seeing through the 1950s of like, you don't know who to trust, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, it's very much like, I think they are, it's the Yerks, right? From Animorphs? Yerks or Yurts or something like that? I'm not familiar with the, the mythos of Animorphs. Did you not read Animorphs as a kid? No. Oh. But it's... I would put it more close to uh, those like brain slug creatures from TNG. Yes. Um, so it's very similar to, uh, yes, the end of season one of TNG, uh, the episode Conspiracy. But yeah, it's it's also like if... Invaders from Mars, you yeah, know? Yeah, very similar. Exactly. Like we've seen these ideas in a lot of places, but it does make me think of the Yerks who are like slug monsters that control your brain and are the bad guys in Animorphs, only instead of shape-shifting teens fighting the alien invasion it's you know like Mulder and scully basically yeah Yeah. so all of that is to say um i don't know if gordon urquhart ripped off robert heinlein but robert heinlein 
is riffing on very common ideas. Yeah. Um, like Puppet Masters is 1951. So it's before a lot of these movies we've seen, but like he didn't sue any of those other ones. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like these are ideas that are just kind of in the air. So we'll see, we'll watch the movie and see if we think it matches enough of that plot synopsis that Heinlein should have sued or not. For Roger Corman's part, uh, he claimed to have never heard of Heinlein or his novel, <laughs> um, which, I mean, might be true. Uh, it's worth pointing out that, like, Vesota had already gotten the script from Urquhart when he came to Corman. Like, Corman wasn't really involved in the, like, scripting process of this movie. Corman claimed he'd never heard of Heinlein or the novel, but he did agree to read the puppet masters and after reading it he admitted that there were some similarities so he settled out of court with Highland for $5000 okay which is significantly less than $150,000 but yeah but like i feel like Heinland would have known that that number was not going to be possible uh AIP did offer screen credit to Heinland after the thing, whole thing was you know settled out of uh, court and he was um, like fuck no yeah Heinlein refused on the grounds that the movie was bad yeah well <laughs> this is a guy who's been like championing hard sci-fi like I don't want to go back into being like tied to schlock sci-fi yeah I mean he really is like one of the main writers who started to establish sci-fi as like a more respected literary genre. I think Stranger in a Strange Land is a big part of that for sure. Um, he's one of my favorite sci-fi authors. Um, but I do just think it's funny that you're like, you stole my idea. You know, you plagiarized me. And it's like, oh, sorry. Yeah, okay, we'll give you credit. No, I don't want credit on your crappy movie. <laughs> like, okay, why did you raise a fuss then? For the money, Ben. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So today, the Brain Eaters can be streamed on Tubi, courtesy of Shout Factory. Um, it's also on our YouTube playlist. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. If you would like to find that playlist, you can head to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Brain Eaters from 1958, directed by Bruno Visoda. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. And we watched The Brain Eaters like two days ago, <laughs> in all honesty, um, in the interest of transparency. Uh, life got in the way, yes. as it often does. Uh, I was very busy over the last uh, few days. And uh, so we just sort of ran out of time to record the second half of the episode and... We're doing it now, a couple days later, but it won't make any difference to you. You're listening to it all together in one piece. Sarah, what did you think of The Brain Eaters? Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Way better than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed it. What did you think? Yeah, I really liked this, actually. Um, it's obviously low budget. The bad sound throughout is a classic rookie mistake uh and the effects aren't great but i think the movie manages to make up for it in a lot of ways yeah the uh the slug creatures are somehow adorable i think because of their visual similarity to tribbles they are tribbles with pipe cleaner antennae so they're adorable <laughs> Um, but why don't I give the full synopsis before we start getting into things? Yeah, absolutely. We are set in Riverdale, Illinois, and instead of seeing the epic highs and lows of high school football, <laughs> we see Glenn with his fiancée, Elaine, driving home. And they see a bright light and disturbance in the forest. They go to investigate, and they find some dead animals and a large cone structure. 
Next thing we see, Senator Walter K. Powers is uh, hearing about this cone. Now, he is a senator in the Flying Saucer Investigation Committee, and he, along with his secretary, fly out to Riverdale to look into this cone. So they meet Glenn. Uh, He is here not only because he's like the person who found the cone, but also turns out he is the son of the mayor. And the mayor has been missing for three days, so Glenn is here to meet the senator instead. I'm pretty sure that's how small town governments work, right? It's a hereditary position, and if the mayor disappears, his eldest son takes control of the city? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Now, at the cone, we meet Dr. Paul Kettering, um, his scientific partner, Dr. Weiler, and his secretary, Alice. And there is a bit of a, a love story going on between Alice and Paul. So they explain that the cone is clearly indestructible. It's made of a never-before-seen substance. And at the very top of the cone, there is a hole, almost like a porthole. So Paul goes in, and after like nearly a day, he emerges, and it's just a maze of tunnels. Now, this all gets interrupted because the mayor is found! When we see the mayor, he is distraught and weird. He's like about to shoot himself in the head um, before people come in. And he is very like manic. He does cause a gunfight and he gets killed in the gunfight. And they discover a thing on the back of his neck. They do an autopsy and they come to realize that the thing that was on the back of his neck was basically controlling the mayor like a puppet. Uh, There are two puncture wounds at the back of the neck where the antenna would kind of stick in. And if that slug was to be tampered with or removed, um, it would inject a kind of venomous acid kind of material into the spinal cord that would cause death within 24 to 48 hours upon removal. Um, so very like dire circumstances if you get bit, I guess. Yeah, you, you, you can't get this thing off without killing yourself. Yeah. Now we see a little bit more of Alice and Paul's romance as they are in the lab doing some investigations on this parasite And as they are, like, looking at each other with puppy love eyes, um, one of the creatures goes to attach itself to Paul's arm, and he has to, like, use a lit Bunsen burner to get it off. Dr. Weiler calls everyone back to the cone that night uh, with a new theory that what if instead of this being, like, a rocket that landed, it's, like, part of the rocket that got left behind because it was where the fuel was stored. You know, when you launch up, you you drop off the pieces that you don't need anymore, and the actual piece of the rocket is actually floating in orbit. So that's their current theory. And they decide, okay, well, let's, like, try to find the other pieces of this rocket. By this time, Walter K. Powers has tried to call in and get a telegram sent to... Washington, D.C., but it's clear that the message doesn't go through because the telegraph operator is being controlled. Powers also tries to call the sheriff to help with organizing this search, and the sheriff doesn't answer because he is being controlled. So they decide to search themselves, um, themselves being Dr. Weiler, Dr. Paul Kettering, Alice, Walter K. Powers, his secretary, Glenn, and Glenn's fiance Elaine. As they search, they do find a nearby abandoned utility truck and the utility man dead nearby. They aren't able to find any other pieces of the cone, so they call it a night. Then we see, throughout all of this, we've seen um, like some mysterious people walking around with like a glowing sphere uh, that turns out to actually be like a jar, like attacking people and getting them controlled in some sort of way. And now these people arrive to Alice's apartment and put one of these slugs through her window, and now Alice is being controlled. The next morning, they realize that Alice has been taken control of, and Paul's pretty upset because that means that, like, if they destroy these creatures, she will die, um, but she will die regardless. And then they find out that there's someone who has been found at the cone 
having like emerged from the cone. So they go and check it out and it's a Professor Helsingman who has apparently been missing for like five years. He has lost his slug, so he's going to die pretty quick. They've managed to get him to the hospital and the only word he's able to really say as an explanation is carboniferous, which uh, is apparently like a time in Earth's history when there are like giant insects and like the carbon age and stuff. With that as their clue, they determine the new theory that these creatures, these slugs, came from below the Earth's surface and are now trying to colonize the Earth. Um, They first tried to take control of some animals. That didn't work. And so then they took control of people and they realized, ah, yes, this is how we can fully colonize the surface. So Glenn and Paul go into the tube in the cone to try to figure out how can we stop these. And when they get inside, they find a hidden chamber where 27-year-old Leonard Nimoy is playing an old man, Professor Cole, who is one of the scientists who went missing five years ago. Um, And he says that, yes, we've come from beneath the Earth's surface and we're going to impose peace upon mankind. The parasites start to chase after Glenn and Paul, so they get out of that tube And once outside, they use the utility truck to set up a system where they can electrocute the cone. But before they can, you know, connect the two ends, Alice comes out, out of the cone. And Paul goes to her to be like, Alice! And Alice is like, don't do this, Paul. This is like the peaceful option. They can't come to an agreement because Alice is being controlled. So she shoots Paul. And as they kind of struggle over the gun... Glenn connects the wire to the utility pole and electrocutes the cone, Alice, and Paul, though Paul was already dying from the gunshot wound. So Powers and Glenn confirm inside that the parasites are indeed dead, and now they just need to deal with the people being controlled in town. But Glenn and Elaine embrace after having this harrowing experience, and that is the end. Yes, this movie realizes that... um... We don't need to see all of that. We don't need to see the cleanup. Yeah, exactly. We can trust that Senator Walter K. Powers will take care of it. Yes, he is a get things done man. It's in his name, Walter K. Powers. That's right. When he gives his telegraph, he signs his name as Walter K. Powers. And I get that maybe you don't need to pay for your telegraph, but it's just very funny that like you pay for every letter. Let's make sure to add in the K. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of like little things that I really liked about this. Um, great moments of visual storytelling throughout. Yeah, Bruno Vesota does a lot of great work with the visuals. Like the sound. So the sound is bad. Yeah. And the reason the sound is bad seems to me that um, I, I think a lot of this might have been shot on location mm-hmm. rather than on a set. Because when they're outside, it's, you know outside outside and when they're inside the sound is often really echoey um yeah yeah like they have the boom mic not close enough to the actors no one is laved um no adr done and we're just getting this very like echoey sound that you would really only get in like a real building i think Mm -hmm. um so yeah the sound is bad but vasota really goes for broke with the visuals he's got moody lighting He's got camera movement. He's got Dutch angles. Dutch angles galore. We get a like first person point of view shot from the slug's point of view as it's going through the window and crawling towards Alice. Yeah. Um, There's just all kinds of other techniques to keep things moving and visually interesting throughout the film, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's, it's very much similar to your invasion of the body snatchers kind of story. But I think the on location shooting and the very like stark visual style gave the movie a feeling of like desperation and kind of almost like, like a night of the living dead quality. Yeah. 10 years early. Yeah. And the editing served to really help with that as well, because um, for example, when we hear that the mayor has been found, we cut immediately to, 
the mayor by himself and we see his desperation before people arrive in. We don't spend the time as we usually do in B movies to like travel to the mayor's office as well as not just following our characters getting to the mayor. We cut immediately to the mayor as soon as he's brought up. Yeah. And, you know, we see something that our characters don't see, right? We see him trying to like kill himself to get out of the control of this like slug. And by the time they are there, he's like, what are you talking about? I'm fine. Right. Cause the slugs controlling him. Yeah. Um, there was stuff in this movie, like when we cut to Washington and it's like powers getting briefed on things and there's a lot of like jargon and powers like talking about how like we have to keep this hush hush. And he also like, it doesn't go anywhere. But, like, he instructs his secretary to basically, like, blackmail an army general in order to prevent, like, something, like, a panic from occurring that he doesn't want to have happen. And, like, there's a bunch of politicking. And it doesn't make any difference to the movie, but it's, like, a a nice little, like, beat, a nice little detail of, like, treating these people as, like... Real. Real people who exist in a wider world. Oddly enough, it reminded me in spots of the kind of writing that Edward wishes he could do. Yeah. The feeling that we're in that wider world, that there are these stakes, even though we are focused on these specific individuals. Right. And that attempt to kind of give convincing sounding like jargon dialogue. Um, yeah. It's like Edward writing, but much, much better. I think the, um, the cast does like a really strong job. The only person I really thought was weak was Jodie Fair, who plays Elaine. Yeah. To be fair, though, she has nothing to do. Yes. Very she, like, I don't know why she's here. I mean, she's getting a paycheck. That's nice. But like, there's no reason for her to be around. There's definitely maybe a little bit too many characters like the movie, especially with like those professors showing up at yeah. the end. Like, yeah. it's like, hey, guys, come on. Well, we have this like core group and, you know, the movie does kill people mm-hmm. like the mayor gets shot and Paul gets shot and Alice gets electrocuted and like big up on the movie for having the balls to do that kind of stuff. Um, but it really does feel like Elaine's just here so that Glenn can have a girl at the end. Cause we knew that Alice and Paul were going to die. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's odd because like, yes, people die, but with such a big cast, even with like how many extras that are around, mm-hmm. um, I almost felt like more people should have more died. people should have died. Yeah. Like there's no reason like why is Weiler alive by the end? And yeah. yeah. So the fact that they have Paul and Alice die helps disguise that because those are like Paul, as soon as he's introduced, he's like, that's the main character. Yeah. Paul and, and Alice are set up to be our leads and they both die. And instead we end up with like these secondary mm-hmm. leads of Glenn and Elaine. And what's neat is like Glenn's character arc is becoming the main character, right? Like yes. he's the one who, you know, kind of saves the day at the end. Yeah. He has this uh, character arc where he goes from being this like, um, not to use like, terminology that i'm really not a fan of but like kind of a beta male sort of archetype i was gonna say mousy yeah he very much um like he doesn't believe in himself like yeah like he's the son of the mayor so i think in his mind everything he has happens to come because of who his dad is and he's ashamed of that yeah and throughout the movie like he really puts himself down and devalues his contributions and paul actually through the movie is like hey man like you shouldn't do that like you're you're a valued part of the team. I like having you around kind of thing. And then, yeah, um, Glenn basically like doesn't consider himself like a man. And so at the end of the movie, he has to find the strength to, you know, kill the lead characters in this movie in order to save the world, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's his arc. Um, now, with Elaine, I will say that she gets she has there's, there's she you could cut her out of the story and it wouldn't make any difference. But she does get a few good lines of like, you know, no, like us girls aren't staying behind. Like you have to bring us along on the searches too. Yeah. Um, and that's really where you notice that Jodie Fair is not that great of an actress. Cause she's really <laughs> failing to deliver those lines, like in a convincing way. Yeah. Um, it's like, Oh, Oh, it's my line. Yes. But I really liked, um, Ed Nelson as Paul Kettering. So hot. He is very handsome. I think he looks like 1950s Oscar Isaacs. Yeah, Oscar Isaacs in MASH. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> if if Os- yeah, sort of like if Oscar Isaacs was mixed with Alan Alda is yeah. kind kind of his look. Um but yeah, very handsome, but he gives a really good performance too. Yeah. Um and what's neat is this movie has a range of different shot styles. So like we'll mm-hmm. go from like close up to like medium shot long shot whatever um so it felt like his acting abilities were a bit more on display than in the last movie where everything was pretty like waist up at the closest yeah um that's another great thing about this movie that helps disguise the low budget is you know even though we do go into town and then come back to the cone like multiple times um one of the reasons why that kind of like back and forth shit in B-movies can be really um, tedious to watch is you often get the feeling like, okay, there was one camera angle for this room and one camera angle for that room. And we shot all the shots for this room, all just kind of one right after another. And the only reason why you don't just see nothing but that camera angle is because we cut to the other room sometimes. Whereas like every time we came back to the cone... Like, it was always new camera angles and new setup for everything that happened. Yeah, they're really taking the time to diversify what visuals we are seeing. They're making a movie. They're making a movie. The cone has, like, this scaffolding around it for the scientists to work, and there's, like, a bunch of, like, gunfights on the scaffold at one point. Yeah, I didn't mention this um, because I was just kind of trying to streamline, but at one point there are these two cops, these guards, that are, like, trying to make sure, like, no one goes up, and they're being controlled by the slugs, and they start a gunfight with our crew. Yeah. Um, yeah, one, like they start like up the scaffolding shooting and then like they fall off the scaffolding and then we get a zombie moment mm-hmm. where after being shot, they get up and they're just like, yeah, because you have to shoot someone. the slugs. Yeah, because they're controlling the central nervous system. So it doesn't matter if like the host body is dead. Yeah. And that I was just like, Wah! yeah, you had a reaction. Yes. Um, and I think it's notable. Yes. Because we are inching ever closer to Night of the Living Dead. That's right. Um, I also really liked um, actor David Hughes as Dr. Weiler. Um, I recognized him from Star Trek. He's in the episode Errand of Mercy from the original series. And I really liked Dr. Weiler as this like older scientist, like older, older man, but kind of like down for things. Yeah. Like Dr. Weiler's like, okay, yeah, these are probably aliens. And like, all right, so we're going to have to shoot them. Let me get my gun. And like, just kind of like is a team player through the whole thing and doesn't have like some kind of old person like, oh, this is impossible. Kettering, you young whippersnapper. But it's also not like, you see, I brought them to the surface because humanity must learn right sure Mad yeah scientist kind of deal yeah he's just like a good guy on the team yeah. uh, and i quite like that but my th- i think my favorite person in the cast is cornelius keith yes who plays senator walter k powers he's really owning that role yeah he's like i don't know there's something about powers that really reads like this is a 1950s u.s senator <laughs> This was actually Keefe's final film. Uh, He had been acting since 1924. Wow. He has a lot of experience then. Yeah. He never really, I think, got much beyond like supporting actor or character actor. Like, I don't know if he was ever like a a lead at any point, but he just has like, you know, 30 years of experience to bring to this minor character. Right. So even though it's a B movie and he's playing like, not the lead um he's like down for this and he really like talks like and sounds like a senator you know he's a politician um yeah i really enjoyed his character a lot i'd watch like a series of senator walter k power movies (laughs) all the king's men with walter k power that's right yeah i just want to like go back to the editing one more time because um it was such a nice surprise. It felt very modern. Mm. Um, and it 
just so interesting to think like how good the editing was in this movie. I've already given some good examples, but thinking of it in comparison with last week's movie, Night of the Blood Beast, um, like we mentioned uh, how the way that the movie is constructed and made helps the actors shine, uh, like with Ed Nelson and what's needed is you can directly compare the two because like yeah. they're one right after the other. But Night of the Blood Beast just struggled with its editing versus the brain eaters, which excelled. So yeah. it's, it's really just who do you have on your team? Yeah, for sure. I I wonder about, you know, Bruno Vesota being involved in dementia and like that movie having such mm-hmm. like a modern feeling style, which like meant that in 1955, it was like very avant-garde. Um, yeah, and that's I, what that means. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I think about like, you know, how much of that he is bringing into this movie. Yeah, so long story short, dope as hell. (laughs) The music is all library music, and it's not, like, particularly well edited. Like, it has those sudden, um, like, stops and starts that library music sometimes has. But I think it was well chosen for keeping up the excitement throughout the movie. Yeah, nothing um, too egregious in terms of, like, sudden starts and stops, as well as being completely out of left field tonally. Yeah. Another thing that I liked about the film was, you know, we've seen this premise a lot. Yes. Mind control aliens. But what I liked here was the focus on the horror of being mind controlled. Like we Mm -hmm. have, we've mentioned like the mayor trying to kill himself. There's also a really good scene where like the sheriff is very visibly like struggling against the control before like his mind breaks and he buckles under the pressure. That was something that we noticed was missing from invasion of the body snatchers yeah what i saw here was a clear horror focus in the presentation rather than a sci-fi focus yeah that said the reveal that the parasites drilled up from within the earth rather than came from space is a very cool sci-fi idea um even if you know it doesn't really make sense. And the, the tribbles with the antennae are a bit silly looking, as is Leonard Nimoy's Saruman cosplay. <laughs> you know, for me, it was more just um, if you sit down to think about so they came up from the from below the Earth's surface and they've been here for thousands of years. But also these scientists went missing five years ago and only now are they coming up. It, it, it doesn't and, really uh, hang together. Yeah, don't think about it too much. Whereas if it was just like a rocket from outer space, boom, you don't have to worry. Yeah, fair. But I, I appreciate them doing something different yes. with it, something interesting. Nimoy's appearance in this movie is very fun because um, he gets to say a bunch of dialogue about how humanity, you know, is doomed because of its dependence on like emotion and like how we're irrational and violent and how the slugs are peaceful and, you know, they come from a utopian society of logic and mathematics. So that was all a lot of fun, even if like (laughs) the scene where they find him. So like, yeah, I don't know why they cast Nimoy when he's 27 because they find him and they've pumped the scene full of like dry ice, like fog to obscure the fact that they've got a 27 year old in like a mall Santa beard <laughs> and like a white long wig and these white robes. Like I'm not joking when I say it's Saruman cosplay. Yeah. And he's just sort of like sitting there delivering this like monologue. Yeah. It's, it's fun, but it is like a little bit goofy it's it's probably the point in the movie where it most feels like a standard 1950s sci-fi movie in the sense of like the alien getting its opportunity to pontificate on like the nature of man or whatever. Yeah. And to that end, um, we talked about Robert Heinlein right. get, getting all like huffy that they stole the premise. Um, as far as I know, because like I have not read the puppet masters, but I don't see really any similarities beyond the general idea of man being controlled and red scare. Yeah. Other than just like the very basic brain eating parasite thing, right? Like, yeah. Okay. But the 
ones in Heinlein's book are slugs and these are tribbles with antenna. Yeah. Um, additionally, fucking everybody has been doing the uh, brain controlling parasite thing throughout the 50s. Like if you were going to sue someone, sue Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. Um, and then also, other than that premise, yeah, nothing here. Like not even the sense like you couldn't even point to scenes and be like, oh, they took this scene or whatever. Like Highlands ones are definitely aliens. They're from like Titan or whatever. Um, Highlands thing is set in the future. It involves those two secret agents agents who get married. (laughs) There's just like a ton of subplots that like there's nothing. There's no connection here um, between the two. Another key thing in the Heinlein novel is that like you can overcome the slugs by being like red-blooded american enough and no, you can you like just, you squish, just squish it yeah you squish yeah. it on the back and of your neck and that's like a key thing that doesn't work here right. and to me when that was explained that's when i knew heinlein didn't have a leg to stand on yeah so like buddy just should have chilled the fuck out you know <laughs> well We've kind of spoken about how this movie relates to some others. Do you want to move on to ranking? Okay. Yeah. So, um, I have a range of like 19 places. Okay. I have kind of a, kind of a spot. So you go first. So I started thinking of, you know, movies this is similar to, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers was the first one to come to mind. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is sitting at 28 and right below it is Fiend Without a Face, which also has like weird brain mind controlly things. (laughs) Um, and I don't think this is as good as Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, it certainly isn't as iconic and you know, this movie also ends with very much like a well, that takes care of that. Whereas like Invasion of the Body Snatchers has that more ambiguous ending that's better. Um, and then Fiend Without a Face has stop motion ambulatory brains with eye stalks. So this movie's antenna tribble cannot compete. compete. No. Um, but below Fiend Without a Face is X the Unknown, which is the one where they find a big blob in a pit. Yeah. And I think I kind of like this better than that, maybe. So I made um, 29, my ceiling. And then looking below that, there's a bunch of great movies. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, Creatures of the Black Lagoon, Night of the Hunter. So I kept looking down and down, you know, Phantom of the Opera, Cat in the Canary. Um, and at number 49, we have Bore Kaibio Yashiki, which is Black Cat Mansion, I think. Yeah. Which is a lot of fun. But I think this is the better horror movie of those two options. Mm-hmm. Um, and right above Bore Kaibyo Yashiki is another very inexpensive horror movie with bad sound from recording on location, The Screaming Skull. I think The Screaming Skull could be better than this. I think The Screaming Skull was really strong, like surprisingly so, uh, in a similar way to this movie. So my range is 30 to 49. Interesting. Um, so... Just to call out some other movies that had uh, similarities to this movie, you've mentioned Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Fiend Without a Face. So at 92 is It Came from Outer Space from Jack Arnold. That's 1953. Um, So much, you know, not much, five years older than this movie, but also had the people being taken over, etc. Small town. Yeah. Um, and then the other movie that's a little similar is Quatermass 2, which had uh, those like flying bat things coming from the plant and taking over people. Right. But like you, I started looking at Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And like you, I felt that Invasion of the Body Snatchers was better because it's more iconic. I think parts of the horror are kind of done a little better in the brain eaters because it really speaks to the horror of being taken over. But I guess, you know, body snatchers, you're not really being taken over. You're just being replaced. Yes, correct. So I can kind of understand that, but more horrific ending. So looking below that fiend without a face, you you can't compete with brain stock things, you know, but then X, the unknown with the blob, 
also kind of looking forward, but I didn't feel like it had as much power as the brain eaters. So my spot was above X the unknown and below fiend without a face at the very top of your range. Okay. Well, I think then we just put it there. Cool. All right. So entering the list at the new number 30 is the brain eaters from 1958 directed by Bruno Vesoda. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to all of the episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed to listen to it on whatever podcasting app you like. And you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on said podcasting app. You can also help us out by telling a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. And if you have the means, we'd really appreciate it if you head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month, just like Darlene E., uh, patrons at the five and ten dollar level get access to regular bonus content, and all of our patrons get to vote in our monthly polls to determine our horror adjacent bonus episode each and every month. This month's poll has been running really close, right, Sarah? Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, we we're still tied for Hound of the Baskervilles or Calling Doctor Death. So we decided that um, rather than us have to choose, we would leave it up to chance by rolling a die. Okay, so... I have a 20-sided die. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you want to say is what? Let's say roll low is Calling Dr. Death and roll high is Hand of the Baskervilles. Okay. What do we got, Sarah? We got a three. Okay, it's Calling Dr. Death. All right. That will be horror-adjacent episode for April. That's starring Lon Chaney, the first in Universal's series of films based on the Inner Sanctum Mysteries. So that will be coming out at the end of this month, but next episode is episode 250. Wow. What are we going to be watching for episode 250, Ben? Wow, 250. So we've been doing this for like... A long time. Five years. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Well, next week, Sarah, for episode 250, we have a real big treat. Uh, It's one I know you've been looking forward to seeing for some time. It's in the Criterion Collection. It has a theme song by Burt Bacharach, and it stars Steve McQueen. (gasps) It's The Blob. Oh, my goodness. I've been excited for this since I saw Steve McQueen in Bullet. (laughs) All right. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.